This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey everyone, Molly here, media director of For the Wild, and I'm here with your weekly reminder to subscribe to Drip. Drip is our ongoing crowdfunding campaign that allows you, our beloved listener, to subscribe on a monthly basis to support our podcast. If everyone listening to this episode values it at just $1, we'd reach our crowdfunding goals overnight. So head on over to our Drip page, which is d.rip backslash four dash the dash wild to support the podcast. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. The climate architecture for the world today doesn't portend any reason for, for hope for, for Africa. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Nemo Bassi. Nemo is the director of the ecological think tank Health of Mother Earth Foundation and a member of Oil Watch International Steering Committee. He formerly served as chair of Friends of the Earth International and as executive director of Nigeria's Environmental Rights Action. Nemo has received numerous awards in recognition of his environmental and human rights advocacy work notably the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, or the Right Livelihood Award in 2010. His most recent books are To Cook a Continent, Destructive Extraction, and The Climate Crisis in Africa and Politics, Echoes of Ecological War. Well, welcome to For the Wild, Nemo. What an incredible honor it is to introduce someone such as yourself whose work 
really punctures so many overlaps of the global dilemma. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Before we begin, I want to thank you, not only for standing boldly in the face of increasingly militarized extractive industries and unsettling climate turbulence, but also for holding onto the importance of art as a poet and architect in these troubled times. And in this conversation, we could hone in solely on the fossil fuel politics of Nigeria, the West African nation lying on the Gulf of Guyana from which you were born. But I also really welcome you to share stories beyond Nigeria, as political and geographic boundaries have never, nor will they ever, isolate the shared quandaries of humanity. So in early June, you penned an article titled In the Belly of the Plastic Whale to mark the 2018 World Environment and World Oceans Day emphasis on plastic consumption. You concluded this article by viscerally reminding us that as oil is synonymous with blood, ocean fish are becoming synonymous with plastic. A collateral output of our addiction to fossil fuels, plastic has infiltrated nearly every food chain on the planet, epitomized by the projection that there will be more plastic than fish in the oceans by 2050. The fact that approximately 1 million single-use plastic bottles are bought every minute and 8 million tons of plastic are dumped into the ocean every year is absolutely symbolic of how debilitated and disposable individualism and neoliberal capitalism has left us feeling about ourselves and the earth. And reducing plastic consumption is hardly contentious. It's an obvious necessity. Yet even the most educated and able people continue to come home from the grocery store riddled with plastic bags and straws and cups and packaging. So I wonder, how do you think we can encourage one another to realistically engage with the cannibalistic implications of our incomprehensible plastic consumption? That is a huge question, but it's a question that we should all ask ourselves because we have pushed ourselves into a disposable civilization where people are looking for the easiest way to consume the most amount of resources. And people just want the easiest way to do things and not think of the consequences. And so plastic is everywhere. We're eating plastic. We're having plastic in our clothing, in our buildings. We're having plastics in means of transportation. It can be said to be a plastic civilization, but this cannot be allowed to go on. This is a, a good time for us to remind ourselves. And this requires that we have these conversations in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, to remind ourselves that the dependence on plastic is destructive beyond what we can see. The manifestation in the oceans is just a clear case that should drive in this message. Because sooner than later, as scientists have estimated, just imagine having more plastics in the ocean than fish. And as you mentioned, in the, when I went to the Plastic Museum in Bergen, Norway, I was absolutely astonished to sit beneath those plastics hanging on display. That amount of plastic from the belly of just one aquatic life form, it's a big testament to the destructive bent of humanity. 
And indeed, I found it inexcusable that we can just keep dumping plastics everywhere and thinking that once it's out of sight, then it's out of circulation. These things just don't go away. They hang around for, for years, sometimes for hundreds of years, projected into the future. It's a big issue. We should actually ban disposable plastic, one-use plastic elements across the world. We can't really afford to wait to do this one nation at a time. There should be a collective global ban on single-use disposable plastics. Yes, and in your 2017 TED Talk, you said the most complicated problems in the world can be solved with simple solutions. And I'm curious, when it comes to plastic, is the solution as simple as ceasing consumption? Because my concern is, what if we just substitute plastic for, say, biofuel-derived products and packaging? That's not actually getting at the root of our plastic consumption. It's actually just substituting it for another fossil fuel-derived product. So could you talk about the root of this plastic consumption and help us find solutions from that point? Exactly. I, I think that is, we have to get to the root of that problem because anything that threatens not just the survival of other beings, but also human beings, we need to treat that as something that is extremely dangerous and serious. We often hear about the elements of using things, recycling, reusing, and of course, the major thing in this case should be refusing. We should refuse to use any form of packaging that is not biodegradable. Anything that's just going to hang out there. I mean, look at what, what scientists tell us about even the simple plastics used in baby napkins. That's something very practical and very useful to keep the heavy stuff away from parents <laughs> uh, for disposal. But that would hang around in the ocean for 450 years. That's completely unacceptable. So it's not a thing that we toy around with and look for a way, way to circumvent action, to avoid action. But you know, the, the world today is driven by forces that like to postpone action and put it into the next generation and avoid do anything because we don't want to be inconvenient. But we can't just go on that way. So we could say, okay, let's legislate. And that is what I would like to say, a global ban on non-biodegradable plastics. But even if that doesn't happen, individuals have a responsibility to refuse to use those things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wonder how local and even national efforts to reduce plastic consumption may potentially be undermined by oil development. The American Chemistry Council recently proclaimed how cheap shale gas is fueling massive investments in plastic infrastructure, with $164 billion planned for 264 expansive projects in the U.S. alone. So fossil fuel reliance is not waning, and consequently, global plastic production capacity is expected to increase by one-third by 2025, which is crazy to think about. So I'm curious how the linkage between oil extraction and plastic consumption resonates within Nigeria, where 90% of export earnings come from oil. You know, recently when oil prices collapsed to below $40 a barrel, that was the reason for some of us to celebrate because for once it got the Nigerian government 
to begin to think away from fossil fuel dependency. But unfortunately, the price is picking up again and everybody is beginning to think, well, maybe the good days in quotes are back. Uh, and so uh, there's a thinking in official circles that oil will continue to be a major income earner for the country. And so well, I'm not surprised that this is a narrative even in global circles where oil rich countries and the oil majors insisting that in the face of global warming being driven by the burning and usage of fossil fuels, they can still keep on pushing this mode of development because that is what brings them cheap dollars, cheap money, pushes the burden on, on vulnerable communities living in the oil fields and vulnerable communities living on the fence lines of toxic refineries across the world. So in Nigeria, actually, from the moment oil prices began to collapse, there were, as I mentioned, there were stirrings in the thinking about life after oil. And some of us who have been campaigning for fossil fuels to be left in the ground are actually also developing campaigns in this direction, that there must be life after oil, and that the oil civilization has had its day, and in next few decades, the world would have to shift away from this very destructive mode of production and consumption. Uh, and so it would not be because oil companies are investing, expanding their investment in fossil fuel extraction, that this civilization will continue in that direction. Looking back in history of humanity, there are many civilizations that just disappeared. And today, uh, historians are trying to unravel what happened, what, why was this break, what really went wrong with these people, what stopped that civilization from continuing. I believe the stubborn continuation in the dependence on fossil fuels may drive mankind to that kind of cataclysmic switch in civilization. And so this is why now is the moment, despite cheap dollars that the corporations and governments who are working with them are receiving at the moment, we just have to think about the future. And this thinking will be forced on the global system the masses of people, the citizens who would make the change. Governments are unable to, to make a switch because our governance structures have been captured by fossil fuel corporations. Just think about the negotiations on global warming generally. We, the whole world, I would say, every country has been glad to sign onto that agreement, but that agreement does not address the major cause of global warming, which is dependence on fossil fuels and release of carbon into the atmosphere. Now, the tendency is for negotiators and governments to think that whatever is broken can be fixed and that technology can solve the problem. And so you keep on depending on these destructive resources, but find ways of kind of offsetting the impacts or at least making yourself feel happy that you're doing something. And so you have, there's going to be a ramp up, an increase in carbon trading. There's going to be extreme technologies, uh, so-called climate smart agriculture, for example, uh, in, which would allow corporations to engineer crops to uh, absorb more carbon. People are talking of 
deploying geoengineering, which means modifying the, the weather patterns, the planetary level. All this gives the impression that, well, you can keep on using plastics, you can keep on using fossil fuels. There are always ways of kind of slowing down the impacts and postponing the evil there. But again, as I said, this was the thinking that led to the collapse of civilizations when no one was expecting a break to happen. And we don't want that to happen again. These technologies that are being created just so that we don't have to actually shift our way of life. You know, it's like, okay, you don't have to stop consuming. You don't have to stop using fossil fuels, using plastic, having this extremely consumptive lifestyle because voila, we have a techno fix of these GMO crops. We have a techno fix of, like you were saying, the geoengineering. And it's not ever really looking at the root of the issue, which yes, of course, this issue is creating climate change, but it's also creating a total breakdown in our relationships with one another and with the earth. And I really think about that as this rooted question when we talk about techno fixes and how are techno fixes really challenging our relationships and how we understand and, and treat life itself. You know, I really want to talk about climate change with you, but I also want to just continue discussing oil extraction in Nigeria first. And there was just an intense statistic I was reading that there are spills equivalent to the size of the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska, which was 30 million gallons of crude oil. And there are spills equivalent to that that occur in the Niger Delta every year over the past 50 years. And I've heard you say that there are at least 300 spills every year. And then another example, Nigeria is the second largest gas flare in the world under Russia. It's also the Niger Delta is classified amongst the top 10 most polluted places in the world. And these statistics make me consider how transnational corporations view huge geographic areas of Africa as sacrifice zones. And the level of disregard for Africa and the Middle East is just gut-wrenching. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you around what's happening in Nigeria, in the Niger Delta, when it comes to oil extraction and spills and contamination, and maybe explain to us why is there such an excessive number of spills, and is there any spill response that is even remotely adequate that happens after a spill has occurred? You talk about the number of spills that have occurred over the past 50 years, now extended, it's now 60 years. So, so the impact is expanding and persistent. Now, there are many reasons to account for this. One is that all infrastructure is 60 years old in many places in the Delta, and they've not been adequate. In this part of the conversation, Naimu describes how pipelines that were designed with a lifespan of 20 to 25 years, many have never been updated and are now twice their life expectancy or more. There's equipment failure everywhere, and corporations continue to blame solely on third-party interferences, or simply blaming the victims instead. On top of this, sadly, third-party interference does exist today. There's been an increase in third parties 
breaking pipelines, either as a political action in terms of military violent resistance to degradation and, and economic exploitation. But that has stopped over at least for over a year now. We've not been hearing about any kind of group blowing up pipelines to make a political point. But we still have massive oil theft going on in the region. Uh, because the theft is at, at industrial level, we cannot exonerate the oil corporations. We cannot say they are not aware of what is going on. Because no matter how much oil is being stolen, they're still making their, their mark in terms of export quantities, export volumes, which goes to show that they are complicit into, in, in the horror that is going on in the oil fields of the Niger Delta. So if so much oil can be taken, and uh, we have illegal refineries in, in the swamps, which are highly polluting, and then others are just taking the crude and probably exporting them, it means that there's, there's uh, a whole complex of forces. In this part of the conversation, Naimo describes that there's a whole complex web of forces exploiting the region today and environmental catastrophes taking place without anyone being held accountable. Multinational corporations that are allowed access to the oil are entwined in joint ventures with the government's own economic interest. So with the oil company acting as producer and the government as joint shareholder, any regulatory systems by the government are inherently flawed by their shared interest in economic gain. And any representations in government in Nigeria that have tried to break up this corruption have been met with intense resistance from the oil companies. This is why the same problems exist today. The issues of ecological destruction, harm to the communities that live in the oil-producing regions, and as Naimo insists, the harm done to the national psyche continues to persist. Now, the other issue is, the, is gas flaring. The gas flaring or the burning of gases associated with crude oil production. At the moment, there are over 200 gas furnaces burning day and night, not just occasionally, but continuously. In this part, Naima describes that there has been burning for decades since oil production started. Why would this be allowed to happen? The main reason being that neither the government nor the oil companies have invested in the infrastructure to capture the gas. Nigeria has said they will end the gas flaring by 2020, and the World Bank has set a target for ending the practice of gas flaring internationally by 2030. Even so, the economic incentive for the government of Nigeria to install the new infrastructure seems highly unlikely. But again, the world is presenting gas, natural gas, as a cleaner uh, source of energy with regard to global warming. But the fact is also that scientists have found that the methane in natural gas is actually, in the short term, more harmful, perhaps, than carbon dioxide. So it may look clean, but it's still creating the problems. So we, we don't really have an option that the shift to cleaner forms of energy uh, in the long run. And of course, also what we would prefer in the short, short term. If critical investment is being made uh, to save the planet and to save humanity, I mean, that would be the best option. But because of the heavy amount of the trillions of dollars still being locked in fossil reserves, the industries want to keep extracting them until they get the last drop out. But to whose benefit? 
industries, not humanity, not the planet. And it's industries and corporations and governments who are getting the benefit of this fossil fuel extraction. I was reading that 70 to 85% of Nigeria's government revenue comes from oil money. But despite the fact that Nigeria has been generating profits from oil and gas over the last six decades, the national savings account is $1 billion compared to Norway's $1 trillion in their sovereign wealth fund. So Nigeria is still constantly having to borrow and source money for any other project or programs because even though they are the government of Nigeria is receiving money from this oil and gas development, it's still so much less than the transnational corporations. It's just interesting to contrast the governments of the United States and Nigeria in their relationships to the fossil fuel regime and you know, it definitely begs the question of who exactly is benefiting from transnational oil companies exploiting resources, flaring gas, and contaminating land and waterways. So I, I guess maybe we could have a question of, is the Nigerian government truly benefiting or is it the transnational corporations tied to larger imperialistic powers and how does the Nigerian government and the transnational corporations interplay with one another? <laughs> the government of Nigeria and oil corporations are in unholy wedlock. That's the kind of relationship that we have. And it's not just in Nigeria. You can extend that to virtually every country that depends on, on extractive industry. So that's both in the global north and the global south. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, the amount in the Nigerian Sovereign Wealth Fund is so small because for some reason, over the years of military dictatorship in Nigeria, which spanned a period of 30 years, there were only periods when we had some form of democracy before the military stepped again and finally left at 1989. Within that time, the Federation ceased to be a truly federal system. Uh, we began to run a centrist system where resources from crude oil goes to a central post and then is distributed across the nation to the subunits or states. Now, the fabric of economic 
arrangement was completely altered by resources from crude oil. And this affected other economic sectors like agriculture. Previously, obviously, Nigeria was not dependent on crude oil until the late 60s and early 1970s. Uh, before then, Nigeria was a hugely agricultural nation and there was elements of development of manufacturing and service sector industries. But oil put this down completely, more or less. And then structural adjustment programs by the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund cement uh, the duration of possibilities of the country uh, investing in and uh, moving in another direction that would not be so tied up to one revenue source. So what we have now, uh, the amount is so small in the in the kitty because whatever resource coming from oil was being shared out to the constituent units in the political arrangement in the country. And so this this situation is still continuing today. That is that is what is going on. And this is why it's been very difficult to actually look critically at the environmental situation, environmental pollution situation of the oil field communities, because all that the political system demands is a continuous, unimpeded flow of financial resources into the national purse, though at whatever cost. And this is why we've had major struggles from the 1990s. Uh, the Ogoni struggle has been very emblematic. The execution of Ken Sarawiwa in 1995 was, a, I, I mean, a certain high point in the struggle and how vicious and dangerous it could be. So, yes, because this was and has continued to be a single source economy, a single revenue economy, everything has been put in place to ensure that that source is not disturbed. Uh, the Niger Delta is one of the most militarized sections of Nigeria today. Uh, if you're traveling on the highways in the region or in the creeks, you're passing so many, so many military checkpoints. Uh, you could see the next one from where you are at one point. Uh, and so you would not be wrong to think that maybe there's war going on in the territory. But this is all a means of showing that, look, we're not going to spare anything to ensure that oil flows. At the moment when we had experiences of military, militant reaction or subversion of the pipelines, you find that both the corporation and the government is so interested in restoring the flow, repairing, getting, getting some kind of peace, restoring the pipelines and getting the oil to flow without looking at the issues surrounding the problems. Now, there's some inkling, some beginnings to reflect more on what can be done. And so the current government is drawing up what it calls a new vision for the Niger Delta. There's been quite a bit of visions over the years, but nothing has really manifested at the end of the day. And I should also mention one sign of hope with regard to the region is that in 2011, United Nations Environment Program issued a report after assessing the Ogoni, Ogoni environment that validated everything that the Ogoni people have been complaining of. And at the moment, efforts are being put in place to begin to clean up decades of oil pollution that has been abandoned in that territory as a starting point for tackling the cleanup of the Niger Delta. It's not a thing that would be completed in a day 
the estimates have it that to clean up Ogoni alone will require about 25 to 30 years of, of work for the environment to be restored to its normal state. And then, of course, we have a, this is just a small part of the Niger Delta. So it's a, a desperate environmental situation that requires actually environmental emergency to be declared in that region. But yeah, so the struggle continues and the people are standing strong, demanding that the pollution stops and that cleanup begins. And we're hopeful that politicians would eventually wake up to the reality of the fact that you cannot continue with business as usual when the people are dying and life expectancy has been cut so short in the region um, by extension. This affects, of course, everybody at the end of the day. Well, I'm so grateful for those who are standing up in Nigeria against big fossil fuel transnational corporations and the militarization of your country because of these transnational imperialistic powers that have come in and just colonize the area for extracting this resource that's poisoning this land. It's really, it's so heavy. And I mean, I know you've experienced so many run-ins with the law and have been kidnapped and arrested in response to your commitment to spreading awareness and protecting your homeland from the oil industry. Well, you just mentioned that, um, that you hope the government starts to listen to the people and stand up. So I'm wondering, are there militant responses rising from the grassroots towards the transnational oil corporations? No, no, oh, no, no, no. no. Uh, that, that has not happened. What has happened in the past has been responses by groups of youths. It's never really been like a mass uprising or communities uprising. It's been, it's been specific groups organized, you know, into taking action in that regard. So, yeah, that, that is where it is. And if communities were to rise up, then that would be war. I think that would just simply compound the problems of the region. So what is your opinion on the best tactics moving forward for the grassroots and the people who are being or feeling the consequences of the oil extraction but don't have political power? The Ogoni people have illustrated what should be the case. You remember in 1993, about 500,000, Ogoni was just about 500,000 persons at that time. But they stood up against Shell Oil Company and got Shell expelled from their territory. And up till today, there's no oil extraction going on in Ogoniland. Now the cleanup is beginning the region. There's a possibility that if oil extraction is halted across the region, that the environment over time will recover from the massive degradation, although it may take more than a lifetime to, for that to happen. But the, to me, the demand of every community should be to have a right to say yes or to say no. That is the most critical demand or tactics that I would see would, I think can work for communities. As it is now, no community has been consulted before extractive activities are commenced in their region. In Nigeria currently, we have another law for solid minerals which requires community 
consultation before any mining activity can go on in their communities. Part of our campaign within the country is to have a situation where oil field communities will also have a right to say yes or no to extractive activities. In the long run, this will be the best solution. The best solution because you have a right to say yes or no. Or if you say yes, what are the safeguards? What are the incentives? What are, how are you going to, how would the environment be protected? What will happen to the cultural safety networks? This will make a major demand on both the government and the sector. And we also encourage that a few countries are working up either to ban plastics, you go back to plastics, or also to outlaw extraction of crude oil in certain, at least in certain regions. Uh, so, so this, there are hopeful signs that as mankind's dependence on fossil resources begin to dwindle, we're also going to have a rise of communities and peoples standing firm to say no to extraction in their territories. So we've been talking about how colonial forces have come into Nigeria and brought these transnational oil extraction corporations. But I'm wondering what's happening in the social dynamics of Nigerians. You know, one thing I'm wondering is, has this settler colonialism pitted Nigerians against one another? And that leads me to this other thought around white supremacy and how white supremacy is really a global predicament, but it's unique in different parts of the world. So I'm wondering, what does racism look like in Nigeria and how is that tied into the settler colonialism framework? I would say that we have elements of environmental racism in Nigeria because what the transnational oil corporations are doing in Nigeria, they wouldn't dare do in their home countries. And so that's clearly an issue of environmental racism. Then again, the neocolonial situation is alive and well. Uh, Africa has been unfortunate over the years to have imperial forces actively subverting leadership that cares for the continent and for our peoples. And so you have the colonial, neo-colonial arrangement driven by forces of neoliberalism entrenched in the, in the governance and economic structures, both on the continent and globally. So right now, yes, what is going on is not isolated. It is not unique. It is not different from the overall paradigm where might is right and Africa is still seen as a place for exploitation, a place for extractive activities. And sometimes I hate to say this, but I do really think that sometimes we have the feeling that some forces would like to see Africa without Africans. So it would just be a reserve where you go to take gold, take oil, take precious minerals, or take the land to grow food for other people. This is why we're having attacks on so many dimensions, land grabs, pollution of genetic material resources, uh, forcing all kinds of violence and conflicts. So most of these conflicts are the theaters of war and degradation are not because of internal reasons. They are externally, externally generated for many reasons. I mean, we've seen 
if you want to look away from the Middle East, look at Northern Africa, look at a place like Libya, the kind of violence that was wrecked on that nation and in many other places. So you can just see that the global petro-military complex, imperial neocolonial forces are bent on ensuring that the 1% retains the power, retains the upper hand, and continues to exploit and suck everywhere dry. But the only hope, this is not just hope, it's something that we have to organize around, by solidarity of peoples across the continent, because I see this everywhere I go, that the negative activities in our countries and continents is not because of the collective will of of the northern society, but just because of the power, the military might and economic power behind corporate interests and between the, uh, behind the political structures that support them. So people come together in solidarity. People join forces to stand in defense of Mother Earth and in defense of our common humanity. I believe that we, at the end of the day, sooner rather than later, to be able to break the shackles of these oppressive forces. Thank you so much for taking us through that train of thought. And I remembered reading you say that, quote, we may have Africa without Africans. And thinking of the complexity of that from the social dynamics and the fossil fuel extraction And then climate change, which is something that we've touched on a few times in this conversation, but something that I really want to focus on right now. In previous interviews, I've heard you say that Africa experiences 50% more in terms of temperature rise than the global average. So that means if global average temperatures rise by 6 degrees, Africa will experience a 9 degree rise. And in addition to temperature rises, climate change will also exacerbate terrorism and social unrest as natural disasters are pushing 26 million people into poverty each year. And research has suggested that unless there is a massive transformation, by the year 2050, the continent of Africa may experience more than a 50% increase in conflict. So this is perhaps one of the heaviest topics to sit with. Definitely, you've you've captured everything the way it is. And this is why some of us really worry about so much applause and celebration that we've seen around the world over the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement aims at a temperature increase of, although they say well below 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees, but between well below 2 and 1.5, I don't see, I don't really see what that means. So it would appear that the Paris Agreement aims at 2 degrees Celsius temperature increase. But based on the nationally determined contributions about emission reduction, estimates are that we're already aiming for about three degrees temperature rise above pre-industrial levels at the close of the century. So that would mean an average of about more than maybe 4.5 degrees for Africa. And that, to me, would be a clear case of setting the continent on fire because that would be very extremely difficult for people to survive on the continent. So the celebrated climate agreement does not bring any, any joy to, it shouldn't make anybody complacent that we've got anything. There's no scientifically determined way of cutting emissions. Nations are just going to do what they feel like doing. 
what nations would naturally feel like doing is nothing, to do as little as they could. This is why already some who have proposed to do certain things say that they've already met the target that they set for themselves. And there's no way to measure, to hold anybody accountable. So we, we have the climate architecture for the world today doesn't portend any reason for, for hope for, for Africa. Because if it's a question of climate action in terms of reducing emissions as source, the polluting nations are not willing to do that. They rather want to find ways of compensating for the pollution and continuing the pollution, which doesn't just make sense at all. Then secondly, in terms of climate finance, we are finding a lot of liturgy about raising funds, new uh, additional funding for, for climate action for vulnerable, poor nations. And this is very troubling because uh, the rich nations make it seem like it's for lack of resources that they cannot raise. I mean, the target from Copenhagen from 2010 was to, from 2009, was to, to raise 100 billion from 2020 uh, going forward. Now, that up to this time, that is looking like an uphill task. And governments are trying to readjust the arrangement to ensure that as little additional funding comes into that, whether we're counting other grants and aid and loans as part of climate finance. So that really shows a lack of readiness at a global level of real action to halt the trend that will be catastrophic for Africa and for other vulnerable continents and territories. For one, if you just look at the level of expenditure by rich countries on warfare, which stands at about 1.7 trillion US dollars a year at the moment, over the past few years, and then it's tough to raise 100 billion by 2020 for global warming, I think we're having the world is having its priorities completely upside down. Because the more the impacts unattended to, the more we're going to have global challenges in terms of the economy, in terms of peace and security. And no matter how many walls nations build around on their borders, we're not going to stop the, the wave of climate refugees that will be coming when things get really worse than they are now. Already we're having a lot of movements across the Sahara Desert, and many people are losing their lives trying to cross the Mediterranean into Europe, from Africa, uh, from elsewhere. But all the deaths and all the pains have not stopped the flow. They have not stopped the tide of flow because people are desperate to escape impacts that are just beginning. In Nigeria, we're having displacements due to sea level rise. We're not talking much about that, but coastal communities are losing land partially also because of the movement of equipment into inland territory through canals created by oil extractive companies. But in the north, we're having Lake Chad, Dragoban. Lake Chad was 25,000 square kilometers in the 1960s. Now it's about one-tenth of that remaining. Uh, and so this certainly affects the local economies around that region, pastoralists, that's nomadic headsmen, Farmers, fisher folks are being displaced. And the violence in the northeastern part of Nigeria is partially attributed to this kind of climate impact. So we're seeing climate impacts within nations and across nations. And the flow 
the flow of human traffic of climate refugees will continue to increase rather than decrease if action is not taken. So we have a whole complex of problems staring us in the face and we're thinking that things are normal. It's not normal at all. Thank you for telling us the truth of the heaviness and the complexity of what's really happening on a global scale in terms of climate change and, like you were saying, um, climate refugees and the great migrations. And, you know, it really begs this question in me that if governments and the Paris Climate Agreement and the United Nations and so on and so forth, if they are not going to actually commit to real solutions, not the false solutions that they tout around, but real solutions that will take a lot to put into place because it's really challenging our whole way of understanding life, especially for those living in the Northern Hemisphere developed world countries. So if they're not going to do that, how do you think we can prepare for climate-fueled conflict, particularly in Africa? especially when we know that scarcity and conflict are imminent and that future generations are coming into a world that will be very different from even the world we're experiencing today? Well, I'd like to be an optimist, but I don't think we can ever be prepared enough for the conflict that will arise. What can be done is to take climate action, and that is for polluting countries to stop pollution as source, and not to outsource the actions on poor communities who are already suffering the impact. It's climate action all the way. Stop pollution as source, stop false solutions, including experimentations that manipulating the planetary weather patterns. I don't see how else we can prepare for it. We, we just can't. It is a call for sober reflection and common sense to prevail. Again, is the issue of a simple solution to a complex problem. Keep the dirty fossil fuel resources in the ground. That is what science has shown, that the known reserves must be left untouched if we're going to keep to a reasonable temperature increase levels as stipulated by the Paris Agreement. If we insist on extracting the resources that have been found and they keep looking for new fields for coal, for gas, for oil, 
to add to what has already been found and then add to that extreme extractive measures, then it just means that we've lost our senses as humanity. Hmm. Yes. Well, to wrap this conversation up, this incredible conversation that's really been so informative and emotional, I want to speak to a topic on reclaiming memory, which you have spoken about in your organization, Home of Mother Earth Foundation. And I want to quote part of that by saying that it says, building, me- building movements that recover memory, dignity, and a harmonious living. And you've emphasized that solutions to our problems reside in our memories. So I'm wondering, how do movements rooted in memory work differ from revolutions built upon dreams or other models of transformation that are perhaps more rooted in emphasizing growth or imagination? Memory is a storehouse for creativity, for innovation, because the truly innovative human is one that lives in harmony with nature. Fighting nature is clearly the pathway to failure because nature can defend herself. Nature can actually do without us. We're not masters of the universe. The universe is too deep for for man to comprehend. We're too finite to comprehend everything around us. We're just one part of the complex of beings on the planet. And going back into memory is a way of recovering our dignity. It's a way of recovering our humility as just a part of a great complexity of beings around us and beings within us. This clearly is the way to the future. We have to go back to the past. And the past is not a cake. The past is innovation, is harmony. The past is a recovery of solidarity, of understanding that the best way forward is for us to go together. And the best way forward is to recognize ourselves in others. And if we see ourselves as being detached from everything else, then, of course, we would have lost who we truly are. Because within us, we are community. Thank you so much for your time, Naimo, and everything that you've shared with us. You are truly a leader and someone to really take your words and integrate them into all of our lives who have been listening. So I I so appreciate your work and thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I thank you for having these conversations and making me think about things sometimes I would like not to think about. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I understand. But like you said at the beginning, this is what's being asked of us in this time is to sit in these conversations and sit in the fire of the truth together. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's high on a mountain, the warm winds are blowing, and where the winds are blowing to, there ain't no way of knowing. 
thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from NECA. Our theme music is from Bo with Silence Returns and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible team, our producer and editor, Andrew Storrs, research director, Madison Magolski, and research collaborator, Francesca Glassbell, and media director, Molly Lebo. And of course, Carter Lou McElroy, our music coordinator. Thank you for supporting us, and until next time. I've been too long away from this wild open sky On the country trails and wide Through the canyons dark and wide The sounds of people talking Words of blue and gray Smells of doors and windows Closed against the day Sweet smell of the pie Drifting on the wind